Hi, welcome to Unpacking Mental Health. I'm your host, Jenna Brown. I'll be having conversations with people about their mental health journey and sharing experiences and insights that we've learned. So thanks for listening. I hope you can take away some tips and tricks that will help you on your journey. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Helen Diverston. Helen is a mental health nurse who has spent over 15 years in psychiatric nursing. After experiencing burnout, Helen spent time upskilling in different areas of mental health and well-being and now has quite a different approach to her work. Helen now has a business, One Life NZ, where she's running a private practice as well as still working part-time in mainstream psychiatric nursing. Welcome to Unpacking Mental Health, Helen. I'm very happy to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Gina. It's lovely to be here. All right, so let's get started. Do you want to tell me what a day in the life of a psychiatric nurse looks like? Sure, I can tell you what it looks like in in my current job. I've had various jobs throughout psychiatry, but I currently work in liaison psychiatry at Middlemore Hospital. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, really based on looking at the people that have come into the hospital for all sorts of reasons. And so our day usually starts with a morning meeting at 8.30 where we discuss any cases that we've seen the day before. And then we um, go through all the new cases. So we basically come together as a team and the team has got psychiatrists, um, training so training registrars and as well as nurses. It's quite a big team at the moment, actually. Okay. And um, we discuss all the cases that have come in over over the past of the new cases over the past 24 hours. And then we allocate those as to who's most appropriate to go and see which um, referral. And then we basically just get on and start our day and get out into the hospital and start seeing people. Right. So do people refer themselves into CU or are they referred by doctors or brought in by police or how is this yeah good um good question so the people that are referred to us are referred to by the by the medical team that are looking after them so if they're in the surgical ward for example then the surgical house officer or registrar might um you know have had a chat to the person and and notice that they're not well or they're delirious or whatever their issue might be and usually they have to um, get permission from the from the patient to make a referral to our service and so they'll do a what they call an e-referral now and um, yep and then we go we pick it up from there. Right and are you also looking after people who may have been detained without their permission? A little we do work with the Mental Health Act as well so if someone's come in especially if they've come in with some sort of self-harm or suicide attempt and then we will be called also to look at instigating the Mental Health Act if necessary so um, I used to be a duly authorised officer so I used to be you know one of the integral parts of that Mental Health Act process I'm no longer doing that job but we still are involved in supporting people um, who may need admission, for example, to a psychiatric unit or detainment for their own safety, even within the hospital. So, yeah, we do get involved in that as well. Okay. Mm-hmm. And is that all done on site at Middlemore or do you work off site at no. houses as well? No. no, it's a job I used to do actually many years ago. I used to work on the crisis team. So, I used to go around to people's homes, into people's homes, and do assessments that way, but not in this current position. So, another team would be doing the, the community visits. So with the people that come in to see you, what do you find? I guess they vary, but the... They, yeah, they vary a lot. The, the, I guess um, because of my sort of speciality, I will generally see the people that have been referred for low mood or anxiety. 
because that's what I'm most familiar with. Um, but people can also be referred because they might be, um, you know, psychotic or hallucinating or, you know, delirious. We get a lot of people, older people that are referred, especially after they've had surgery. Um, okay. Some of them become very delirious, so we sort of deal with that as well. But I tend to do the ones where I know I can be of most benefit. So that's people with low mood anxieties that are depressive symptoms. And whether that's a new onset from being in hospital or whether they've had a long history of it, but it's just you know, now they happen to be in a situation where they're able to be assessed, um, sometimes for the first time, sometimes I've never seen anybody to do with mental health ever okay. before. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and and the self harms too. So people that have come in with a self harm that have ended up having to be admitted to the ward, I'd probably right. pick up quite a few of those ones as well. Yeah. So is that an inpatient um, ward? So people come and stay there for a yes. few days. Completely inpatient. Yeah. Okay. So right. on, within the hospital. Yep. And how long would people stay? Completely varies depending on what their medical issue is so you know if they've come in with complications of a major surgery for example they can be in hospital for months and so we would support them during that time so we offer I guess a lot of psychological support and coping skills you know how we can you know how how to support them to be in this situation for that length of time um other people are in for one night for for whatever reason, and so mm-hmm. it's, it can be very short or very long term interventions that we provide. Okay, mm. and is most of the work that you do one on one, or are there like group type? No, we only do, yeah, no, we only do one on one, and that's and it just yeah, the way the hospital is, obviously, you just go and see the patient in their bed. So okay. um, yeah. that's kind of how it works. Yeah. yeah. So everyone gets their own room and the one of you, the team will come in and talk with them. Yeah, well, sometimes they're not in their own room. Sometimes it's a shared room and that becomes very difficult because you have yeah. to try and drag the patient, you know, either the whole bed, depending if they're mobile or not, and take them into it, find another room. So right, for confidentiality. Yeah. yeah. So Middlemore, is it, it's one ward that deals with that? psychiatric is there many there's many there is a psychiatric unit based at Middlemore Hospital and that's called Tiahomai and that's where that's where the people go that need just need psychiatric intervention but Middlemore Hospital itself is just a very very large hospital Mm -hmm. and um and all, all the wards will have you know any ward can have someone with that needs some psychiatric input on top of whatever their medical needs are Right. So, you know, whether it's surgical, orthopaedic, you know, they could have had an accident, for example. Um, we've, we also cover the National Burns Unit, of course. So we, we cover all the wards that that are within the hospital. Yeah, we cover. And is that the same for most hospitals around New Zealand? Yeah. yeah. A lot of the smaller hospitals won't have a specialist liaison psychiatry team. They will. They would often probably have to get the, the the community mental health team to come into the hospital. But because our hospital is so big, we we can afford to have our own specialist liaison psychiatry team within Middlemore. Mm. Yeah. Right. Okay. What have you found with COVID nineteen and the I guess the lockdowns and the different level changes? I mean, we had a bit of a break since a year ago, and now it's come back again. Has that affected people quite a lot? Yeah, I think it has. Um, look, I, it's so interesting because everybody has coped with these lockdowns quite differently. And for my for myself, for example, I coped with last year's lockdown incredibly well. I actually quite enjoyed it. 
this lockdown I haven't enjoyed at all, I haven't coped well with. And people out in the community as well are similar. And last year I wasn't actually working in this um, position at Middlemore Hospital, but they said that the referrals really dropped off in that first stage of that Level 4 lockdown. And so they actually had a really quiet period. And this year we've actually, our referrals seem to be the same. There's been no drop-off. And I have, even yesterday, you know, been seeing people that part of the reason that they've ended up in Middlemore is that they're isolated, they're on their own, they've not got family, they're not coping. Some of them have had to come in for medical issues anyway, but their their psychological issues are kind of um, more pronounced at the moment because they're not getting the usual supports that they would have. They're not having people visiting them. They're not maybe having, if they were under a community mental health centre, their key workers are maybe doing assessments over the phone, which of course is quite different than having someone face to face. So we have had some people that that yeah aren't coping really with yeah. it, which is understandable. Yeah, I have heard that as well, even from people in my own peer group. That lockdown last time was a bit more. I think it was also summer, so people were kind of spending a bit more time outside and gardening and it's still a bit cold at the moment and people aren't really enjoying it as much. And maybe we thought that after last time we'd moved past it and everything had opened back up, but we've gone back and now it's kind of like, mm-hmm. oh, how many times is this going to happen? <laughs> I think that's it. And last time it sort of had a feeling of a novelty to it. You know, it was kind yeah. of like, oh, you know, it was all a bit novel. And now it just, to me, like the novelty's worn off. Yeah. And now it's <laughs> just like, what on earth next? You know, that's how I started to feel. It's like, well, what next is going to happen? And how long is this going to last? And, you know, what about your family and your friends? And so I'm at this time, I'm not bubbling with my partner. And so um, that's been a real sort of like, oh, well, I might not see you for a month. And so all that sort of stuff, you know, it's a little bit anxiety provoking. Yeah. Yeah. It's very uncertain. Mm. And I guess with the rest of the world, you know, we see the news and I've I've made quite a bit of an effort myself to not really watch the news. Very sensible. It all off my social media because why upset yourself but absolutely when you look at it and see the comments and the even just people I think arguing over different choices and things that is very that can be upsetting in itself it's stressful stressful. and you kind of and it's really hard to not have a reactive emotion especially obviously if you're reading stuff on social media and you you disagree Mm, (laughs) strongly it's really hard not to sort of you know get a bit frustrated about that so I totally agree I've um I don't even have a tv at home actually which is lovely so if I want if I want to watch the news I have to make quite a bit of effort get get a laptop up and you know find the news and put it on and and so I probably do that once a week maybe yeah at a big Um, announcement or something maybe a big announcement or watch it (laughs) online but you know most things I just sometimes I'll just text my family and say what's the what's the latest and they'll just (laughs) out of Auckland and they're like oh you're in lockdown again ha ha so sorry you know yeah so that's happened a few times I get my news from my family often so yeah right so with working at Middlemore and COVID being in full swing at the moment obviously Auckland's in lockdown right now um how is that changing what you're doing with work uh yeah it's it's a funny atmosphere well not funny haha it's a challenging atmosphere at the moment I mean everybody is wearing masks 24 7 while you're in hospital so 
not the patients, but all the staff have all got masks on and even within our offices. So we're wearing our mask all day because we, we have some shared office space. Um, we've had to sort of separate our team out. We don't all meet in one room in the morning. Um, some of the uh, staff members are just in their own office by themselves and so they'll just join in our morning meeting by Zoom. Um, we still go out into the wards, but we only we I guess we're more careful about what wards we go into. There's two wards, well, one ward specifically that's got COVID patients that we are definitely not going into at this point in time. Um, and so, and there's just, you know, obviously there's hand washing constantly. There's hand sanitizer everywhere you go. It's yes. before you go into a ward. It's after you've gone into the ward. It's before you see the patient. It's um, after you yeah. see the patient. It's, it's, you know, after you touch the computer, it's before you leave the ward. So hand washing has always been obviously very important, but and now it's just drummed into you. And, and for a lot of cases, you need to put on the full PPE before you go in because the person um, may have had a bit of a cold sort of symptoms but hasn't had a negative COVID swab. So if they've just come into hospital and we've had the referral, then we need to obviously put all the um, PPE gear on. And right. and even that, actually, it's quite challenging to build a real rapport with someone when you're like almost head to toe in and PPE gear and you're sitting there and it's hot yeah. <laughs> and it's hard to breathe and you're, you know, trying to build up this rapport and, you know, trying to be calm and have this conversation with someone. And it's just, and it just, there's just this underlying anxiety, I think, around the hospital, you know, it's just, yeah, it's, it's a challenging place to be. I really feel for the nurses that are working in the area 24-7 because I, you know, I think it, it's hard work. Mm, yeah gosh and how are your hands looking you must be moisturizing a lot when you get home <laughs> amazingly okay yeah I do I take the train to work every day and yeah I do often just moisturize at the end of the day I put loads of moisturizer on and um yeah because that's really important part of yeah. actually the hygiene thing as well as making sure you don't have any cuts and things right on yeah, hands. yeah I can imagine that much hand sanitizer must get get definitely right in there yeah. okay well um so to protect your own mental health when you're working in a field with people who are struggling so often, um, how does this affect you personally and how do you manage that? There's a number of things. And I think, interestingly, I think part of it is a real skill that you have to, um, you know, over the years of experience and working in this area, you do learn that there is a skill to actually, you know, being completely present when you're with a person and you know sometimes you do hear some very traumatic stories um so you you know and you need to be very present and and there with them but you also do need to be able to leave um that situation and actually leave you know leave your not the feelings as such but you you need to not take all that home with you so um I think a few things help and one is we've got a really lovely team that we work with so we can come back to the office and kind of um you know offload a little bit if we need to like if there's something that we've heard you know we can actually discuss it and um and that's obviously very useful just being able to, dis to discuss it and have you know have someone else to bounce ideas off also as well um humor gets used quite a lot and i think that happens a lot in a, in a um in professions that are really challenging that sometimes you do need to use a bit of black humor with it all yeah um 
there is something about I think developing like a real sense of compassion and and it's compassion for the person that you're dealing with but also compassion for yourself because you know I'm a human obviously and sometimes I get moved or I you know can really relate to the story that they're experiencing or the feelings that they're expressing so part of that is about having compassion I think for myself for um, you know and and that understanding of you know I I get this I totally get this and sometimes you know I get tears in my eyes as well and um, obviously I don't sit there and bawl my eyes out with them but um you know it's hard and I think it would be almost inhumane if you weren't moved by some of the stories that you hear so just just being with it in the moment but also letting go as you sort of go back you know go back to your own life and because I take the train and every day and I think previous to that I was driving and that would that's often my de-stress time is just sitting on the train I'll often go through every every patient that I've seen and all the work that I've done for the day and kind of tick it off in my own mind you know did did I do all that well did I have I done that is there anything I've missed and then usually by the time I get home I've that's that's out of my head and I'm um you know into my own life occasionally um there was, you know, if you're, and especially if you're very involved, like there might be a person that you're involved with almost for days and days at a time because of the situation, and it might be for hours and hours and hours you end up spending for, with one particular person. Occasionally, that does sort of linger with you because you know it's the only thing you've sort of dealt with all day, and you might be doing it for a few days in a row. That's mm-hmm. a little bit more challenging. Um, but I think it's also about being very mindful of that. And when you notice that that's on your mind going, okay, you know, actually stop. I don't need to be thinking about this right now. This is this is work and I'm not in my work time now. And, mm-hmm. yeah. and putting it aside. Yeah. Keeping yourself up late at night with thoughts about things. Yeah, that's yeah. a very bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Keep yourself well. You know, part of being a, a good nurse or or a good listener and all that sort of thing is actually looking after yourself because if you're not looking after yourself you've got nothing left to give the following day for example so it is about actually yeah being able to care for yourself so that you can continue to care for others yeah are you do you work on shifts or is that no thank goodness no okay (laughs) um yeah no I just we just do day shift there um some of the doctors have to do afternoons and nights and I used to do nights many years ago and yeah no it's it's hard very very hard work and it is it's exhausting and 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 it's really not good for your mental or physical health actually to to have you know that disrupted circadian rhythm I mean it's yeah really not good for you so so does that mean patients that come as an operating hours as such Yes, I mean, I mean, obviously, I mean, a lot of the patients who come through the emergency department anyway, they just follow the usual process. And unless it's urgent, um, it, it'll wait for the following day. So if they've come in and, you know, either they're depressed or they're very anxious or something, unless it's really urgent, the referral will just wait till the next day. If it is very urgent, then the, the registrars, the psychiatric registrars, the doctors will get called and they will go and see the person. Um, and sort of make sure it's safe until the following day, until till we can come and see them. Okay. So would someone present at the emergency department with feelings of depression or anxiety and they would wait then to see you or do they not get referred off to their GP? Depends. Um, so it's a, it's a different team that actually sees people in the emergency department. So that's, okay. that's more the community team. And they... Um, 
if it's not urgent, then they will probably say to the person, look, you really need to go and see your GP or, you know, it's not appropriate to come into the emergency, especially even right now, it's not appropriate to come into the emergency department for that. Um, but if they've come in and if they're seriously mentally unwell, then they'll often be held in the emergency department overnight until they're seen by, you know, the psychiatric team. Okay, right. Um, yeah. So after many years in psychiatric nursing, you took a bit of a break. Yeah, it, it it's a big moment in my life, I think. So, and it really has, um, it shaped my future. So I've been working in this job that I'm working at now for probably nine years or so and actually loved the job and really sort of thought, well, this is this is going to be me until I retire. Yeah. And um, one day, you know, I was there at our morning meeting, and I just looked on the board, and there were just the same patients, you know, the same patients that had been in a month before. And at this stage, we were still covering the emergency department. So these are the people that were coming in often with self-harm or suicide attempts. And so I remember looking at the board and thinking, what are we doing? You know, what are we doing in psychiatry? It seems like we sort of patch these people up, we send them out, and then a month later or two months later they come back. And so I was sitting at a morning meeting, I looked at this board and I just thought, there's something really not right about how we're doing psychiatry. Mm -hmm. And um, also part of me was like, I just, I can't hear another sad story. I'm I'm totally done. And um, I remember looking out the window and sort of completely blanked out of the meeting, like completely lost, yeah, you know, your own thoughts. wasn't present at all. And the meeting finished and I walked out and I walked into one of the psychiatrist's room, who's also a friend of mine, and I just said to her, I can't do this anymore. And she sort of looked at me and went, <gasps> you know, because I was a very senior nurse and I'd been there for, felt like forever. And she was like, well, we can't have that, you know. Um, yeah, we need see, you. Yeah, go and see EAP. So EAP is the Employment Assistance Program. So, you know, we've got counsellors that we can go and see. So I booked an appointment with the counsellor that afternoon. And she said, you know, leave work, go and see them, you know, take some time off. And so I went to see this EAP person and I sort of talked to them about everything. And, and he said to me, well, is anything going to change? And I sort of went, well, no. <laughs> he said, well, why don't you leave? And I was like, what? Support and counselling and how do I work through this? And he basically suggested I leave. And I was like, well, that's ridiculous. So um, I thought, no, I just need some time off. So I went to see the occupational health doctor and I spoke to him. And I said, look, I think I just need a couple of weeks off. I'm just exhausted. I'm burnt out, you know. So I had a couple of weeks off and I thought, well, I'm really not feeling any better. So mm-hmm. I then I had another couple of weeks off and, you know, I saw my GP. I saw the health doctor. I'm not sure if I went to see the EAP person again. But I just, I, I was done. I was done when it came to doing psychiatry that way. And um, I... I was sleeping okay and I wasn't feeling depressed or anything. I was, but I was exhausted. And I, I actually, I didn't leave, I remember I didn't leave the house for 10 days. I had my own little lockdown actually. Um, I was out gardening and I was doing things and I was, but I couldn't concentrate on reading. I was just, I really couldn't focus on anything except for simple chores and basic things, which I was, which I was quite happy doing. So it turned out that I had 
I think I ended up having three months off. I took all my annual leave, took all my sick leave, took, you know, and I basically, the manager said, well, you've used up all your leave, you need to come back. So I arranged a meeting with them and I said, look, I think I need another three months off leave without pay. And, and then I think I'll be fine. And they said, no, we're not going to give you that. Now, I'd been working for Counties Manukau for 19 years by this stage. So I was like, okay, um, I'm going to have to resign then. And they were like, oh, no, no, don't resign. And I'm like, well, you know, yeah, yeah. don't point. So in the end, I resigned and I actually gave up nursing completely. I actually literally um, handed in my badge, so to speak, and um, the nursing council was informed that I w- wouldn't be practising. And I took a complete step back and I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do. And at the time, my daughter was um, doing some volunteer work in Ghana, and she said, well, why don't you come over here? And I was like, don't be ridiculous. I need to get myself together and get another job and figure out what I'm going to do with my life, you know. And then after another week or two, I thought, well, actually, why don't I? Why don't I just take some time off and go traveling? So I rang her up and said, I'm coming over. Oh, wow. And so I took um, a year off and I literally traveled for seven months of that year. I went over to Ghana. Her and I had six weeks traveling around Europe. I spent three months traveling um, around Southeast Asia, sort of Cambodia and Vietnam and Laos, and, and then spent six weeks in Bali, which I absolutely loved. But part of that time in Bali, I just spent a lot of time thinking, right, what do I want to do? What is it I really want to be doing when I get back home and what is what is it even going to look like? So I started to think about what I really loved about my job and when I really loved about psychiatry and then what frustrated me intensely. And so I started to look at, well, I think, you know, I love my job. I love doing mental health, but there's something about the way we're doing it that, that's not working very well. So I started to do a lot of research around, well, what builds resilience and what actually causes people to be happy and um, how do we build that more in people and how do we prevent them from becoming unwell in the first place? Um, and I also joined, um, I went to Australia and I did some study on nutritional environmental medicine and I looked at a lot of functional medicine. I did some online courses on integrative mental health and so really started to look outside the medical model. Right. And then I decided that I would train to be a life coach as well because you know, I was very good assessments and diag- not that we theoretically diagnose as nurses, but it's kind of what we end up doing. Um, so I was very good at that sort of things. But actually, and even though I'd done some therapy, I'd done a little bit of cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy and interactive drawing therapy, I sort of thought I really wanted something a bit more of a forward positive focus to work with. So I actually then trained to be a life coach as well. And, um, and then I thought, Right, this is what I want to do. I want to approach psychiatry on a really different way. And so I started my own business, which is One Life. So I started that about six, five, six years ago now. And um, I was kind of building that up. And then I got kind of shoulder tapped to come and work at Be Pure, which is a holistic health oh, clinic yes. in um, yeah. the city. Only because I thought that that'd be really good for me to refer people to who had real physical problems that I didn't know how to deal with. And so I sent them a message and I got a call back from their clinical director. Um, we had an hour long talk on the phone and he said, well, do you want a job? And I said, well, no, actually, I 
<laughs> Thank you. I'm quite happy doing what I'm doing. And he said, "Well, you know, we could we could really use someone like you. Why don't you give it a go?" And you know, and in the end, he's a very good salesman. He convinced me to join their company, and I thought, okay, I'm going to do this for two years. I'm going to learn everything I can about um, health and holistic medicine and and functional medicine from a from a more physical point of view. And yeah. so that's what I did. In fact, but I stayed with them for four years in the end. Um, and then went part-time a year or so ago and then started bringing back my own business again. I was doing that a little bit, but I didn't really have time because I was working full-time for them. And yeah. now I've come back in the last sort of year and a half, I've really come back to build my own business again. And um, what's been amazing is that I was shoulder tapped to come back to my old job. So now I'm back at the job I left six years ago. And right. they said, we would love you to come back. We've got someone on maternity leave. Um, it's just for six months, Helen, and it's just three days a week. <laughs> so, and funnily enough, of course, now it's nine months because I've extended my contract. Um, but it's lovely to be back and come back with a really different sort of mindset and a lot more knowledge on how I can help people from a different sort of point of view. Um and so, yeah, so that's where I'm at at the moment. So still with back, back at my old job in some ways, doing what I used to do many, many years ago, back into mainstream psychiatry. And in between all that, I thought, you know what, I'm going to do some extra study, even more study, and I'm going to do some papers towards nurse practitioner so that I can actually prescribe medications if I need to and also de-prescribe. Because I get a lot of people coming to me that have been like, oh, I've been on these antidepressants for 15 years and I really don't want to be on them anymore and I don't know how to come off them. And, you know, when I try, it hasn't worked very well. And so I'm actually really keen on on being able to de-prescribe for people as well. Um, okay. Yeah. Do you think that the, obviously they have a use um, for some people, but as a long-term tool, they're not as necessary, do you think? Or- um, I think for a lot of people, they're, they're very well, it's a bit of a mix. Some people that come to me are on like, you know, two different antidepressants and this and that and then something else. And I'm like, I, you know, this is, and they're still depressed often, you know, yeah, right. and That's I'm like, lot. this we're missing something here. This is not about medication. This is something else going on. And if you look into their bloods, for example, you'll see that they're really nutrient deficient and they're really, you know, we know that people that have really low folate levels, for example, are less likely to respond to a, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor you know an antidepressant so looking into that sort of side of things and actually going well you know your folate levels are really low that could be why you're not responding so well to these antidepressants let's get your folate levels up let's change your diet let's um you know let's give you some supplements if you think that you need some supplements you know if i think that they need supplements so it's really about coming in a, a more holistic approach and not just relying on medication to yeah. support their wellness. Yeah. So with the with the supplements, are you still using the B Pure? Um, I do some. What I do because I have to be very careful. I'm not a, as a nurse. I'm not allowed to prescribe supplements. Okay. So yeah. what I usually say to people is based on evidence, you know, based research. Um, I can I can 
you know, that this article suggests that someone with depression who increases folate levels or who, who goes on a multivitamin, for example, may find that they have an improvement in energy and mood. And okay. what I usually suggest to them is to go to the health food store, not to the not to the supermarket, but the health food store, and ask for the highest nutrient dose, you know, multivitamins. Because I have to be a bit careful that I don't, A, prescribe as such, and B, um, I've got to be careful that I don't, I don't start making money necessarily off nutrients because then that becomes a bit of a conflict of interest as well so it's all a little you have to be a little bit careful about all these things um and I may choose a nutrient company that I really want to because it's just easier yeah what's that with one life you can right you can be I can, but once again, I just have to be a little bit careful about how that all happens because otherwise, you know, I could just become a person that just sells nutrients. You know what I mean? I just have to be a little bit careful about how I go about that. But, um, yeah, I I do just think for for so many people that I've seen, um, mild anxiety, mild depressed mood, get them on some really good high-dose nutrients, um, and BPU are really good nutrients, you know, so that's – completely happy with people being on them um they'll find that their mood improves mm, yeah you know after a few weeks you know and that with some changes in their diet and some lifestyle changes and and you think okay this is great right so with the life coaching do people come to you um with a whole range it's not just mental health issues it's kind of a bit of everything or how does that yeah work? a little bit of everything i get everything from i don't know what to do with my future to um like you know, relationship so problems and, yeah relationship problems yeah. so I have to be a little bit versatile and and honestly sometimes I've got no idea what's who's going to turn up you know I get, a, right. I get an online yeah. booking and I'm you know and it can be anything it can be an it can be an 18 year old who's struggling with a boyfriend or 18 year old that has got a bit of a low mood um or a 55 year old woman that's you know postmenopausal or you know anything yeah, yeah. About, yeah. which so I love You've got the answer book then for most things. <laughs> I try to. I try to have been, you know, every now and then as someone that I'm like, mm, I just don't think I'm the right person for you. But um, a lot of time I can at least help with the basics and, and I might need to refer them on to someone else. But just getting the basics sorted, you know, ensuring mm-hmm. that you're sleeping well, you're eating well, you're getting really good nutrients, you know, you're not using alcohol as your escape mechanism and then that's stopping you from sleeping at night and then you're exhausted the next day so you drink five coffees, you know. Getting yeah. lifestyle stuff sorted as well can make a huge difference for people. Nutrition, so really, really talking to people about what they're eating um, yeah. and there's just so much research now. So I don't know if you know of Julia Rutledge's work around nutrients and She's done a lot of high, high dose nutrients and um, looking at ADHD and autism. Um, mm-hmm. There was an amazing study that was done in 2016 looking at a modified Mediterranean diet. And um, so getting a bunch of depressed people, they, they split that group in half. They were clinically depressed. They put half of them on a modified Mediterranean diet. And what they found is 12 weeks later that 30% of those people were no longer depressed. So yeah. even just talking to people about this and how diet can actually really affect their mood. Mm-hmm. So I've got, I'm really big on that. And I recently presented actually to the psychiatrists in South Auckland around how nutrition could be better utilised when it comes to um, 
mental health and well-being. So I use nutrition a lot. I also look at things like food intolerances because there's there is quite a bit of information now and research looking at people that have gluten or dairy intolerances and some of them have mood issues. There's a relationship between gluten and dairy intolerances and schizophrenia and autism. So the nutrition the nutritional part is huge. So that's one thing I really look at. I look at a lot about gut health as well. So I often talk to people and even a person I saw yesterday, um, you know, long-term depressed mood. And the, I was going to say to her, you know, what's your what's your gut like? You know, do you have gut issues? And before I even came out of my mouth, she said, oh, I've got very bad IBS. And I'm like, this is not just a coincidence. You know, mm, the, the, the yeah. gut health can really affect the brain health. And, um Psychiatrists wouldn't normally look at that. They wouldn't normally go, oh, so you, you know, your guts, you know, obviously disturbed. You're not, your guts not functioning well. What's yeah. going on there? Why might, um, and how might that be affecting your brain health? Is um, that because they weren't necessarily taught that model, or they're more looking towards medications than the holistic approach? I don't. I, obviously they're not taught it there's very little taught about nutrition or even gut health I think all that sort of stuff's quite new I mean IBS a few years ago was thought to be all in the head anyway so you know irritable bowel syndrome was thought to be a psychological or you know issue so right. some of these things are, are, are just evolving and um, you know there was a, that thing called leaky gut which was found to be all um rubbish actually by the medical profession and now all of us say, oh actually it's increased intestinal permeability so say you know the same, same thing, thing but a different name. Name. yeah um, and if you look at the research on an, an on an um, increased intestinal permeability oh yes there's lots of research on that but so it, it it's evolving um and unfortunate like they often say that it takes 10 years for new research to actually make it into practice so mm. You know, the research is coming out, but actually getting it into the medical model of practice is is just slow, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, is there much um, goodwill between psychiatrists and I guess people like Ben Warren who are more um, looking at gut health and supplements and things? I guess there must be a divide there in who knows best or is right or... Absolutely. No, there, it, I don't think there is. Um, even if you look at Julia Rutledge's work, she has been trying to, to talk to psychiatrists about this and they're just not really interested in listening. Some are, but a lot aren't. And this is why I thought I had a really unique um, perspective and I w- I'm able to step into both models. And this is why I wanted to keep one foot into mainstream psychiatry because I want to understand where the resistance is and why... Um, they are struggling with it, but I also wanted to be able to present to them the actual research that suggests that we do need to be looking at um, mental health differently, mm-hmm. um, and we yeah. do need to be considering, you know, things like gut health and um, general nutritional health and and things like that. So that's one of the reasons why I sort of I really wanted to keep my nursing profession going. I didn't just want to leave nursing and then just be some sort of health coach because. I actually want to change the culture, and yeah, yeah, and, and you might, in their eyes, lose a bit of credibility leaving the profession to go and do the absolutely, yeah. yeah.
Yeah, so it's a bit of a challenge, um, and it was actually a huge thing to be able to present to the grand round of psychiatry that was massive. A, yeah. hardly nurses, nurses hardly ever present, and B, I just kind of got in through the back door a little bit because I did a mini presentation to the guys at work, and they said, oh, why don't you present this to the journal club, to the grand round? And I was like, well, I'd love to, but I'm not sure how. She said, oh, I'll just book you in. I sort of, they had no idea. The doctors had no idea that I was coming. And I just kind of turned up and gave this presentation. And right. um, what was the feedback like? Good. It was very positive. In fact, someone said this is one of the best presentations we've had. <laughs> Something refreshing. <laughs> Something different. And they, you know, it stimulated conversation. And there was a couple of people that said, oh, well, you know, it's too difficult. And and somebody said, oh, but taking vitamins is, you know, is not being shown to be beneficial long term for health. And I'm like, yeah, well, that might be the case. And I'm you know, but but it was still it stimulated the conversation, and so mm, yeah, was, and perhaps a roundabout of people re-entering the psychiatric ward is also not long-term healthy either. Not definitely yeah. not. Yeah. So how did you get on with setting up a private practice, which isn't exactly the same as the medical model, and still be able to practice in that system? You know, usually they kind of censor you or stop you from doing that. What was that process like? So it was super interesting, actually, because when I started, I thought, right, I want to fit as well. I, you know, if you use research-based information and practice, they really can't punish you or they really can't pull you up for that. So when I developed my website and I put everything together um, and I started to do some blogs and I, I basically rang the nursing council and I said, this is what I want to be doing. This is, this is how, you know, I want to pr- do private practice. I want to have a more holistic approach. And I sent them all the information. I sent them my website and, and all that sort of thing. And they came back and they said, look, it looks absolutely fine. So long as it's research-based, you're not prescribing. You're not, you know, saying to people, oh, you must, you know, here's a prescription, blah, 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 because I don't have that authority. Um, and you're just presenting, you know, research, research-based evidence, then that, they were happy with that. So I was like, okay, this is, this is good. This is the go-ahead from the nursing council. And so it's a little bit different in the mainstream medical ward where I am at the moment because, you know, sometimes they're not quite so open. But right. sometimes I can talk to them and say, well, you know, this person's got a really low folate level or B12 level. You know, there is, there is an association between low B vitamins and, and poor mental health. So perhaps if we got their nutritional status up a little bit, um, that might actually help their mood. And so just sort of making some suggestions like that can be a start. Yeah, I mean, my aim is to, you know, have my own clinic and probably do this. That's all I do and do holistic mental health care, Um, you know, and have GPs refer refer their people to me who do really need a bit more um, sort of looking into diet and lifestyle stuff, but also the motivation to actually change. Because a lot of people, when they find out, for example, when I explain to them about, um, how neurotransmitters are made and that we need protein, which comes from our foods that we eat. We need good gut health to actually break down the protein into amino acids. And then the amino acids through various metabolisms go through and become neurotransmitters. But in order to for that to happen, you need specific vitamins and minerals. You need folate, you need zinc, you need vitamin C, you need um, magnesium, for example. And if you're not right. getting these vitamins and minerals through your food, 
you, you, you don't even have the raw ingredients to make the neurotransmitters in the first place. So even explaining that to people, people go, oh, so I get now why it's actually important for me to eat vegetables and green things. And, you know, and then they, then they, and I said, when you eat, think about, are you feeding your mind? Are you feeding your brain? You know, are you yeah. chewing food well? Are you breaking down your food so your body can actually absorb the nutrients that you're eating? And when they get that, it's sort of changed and it's empowering as well, I think. It, people start yeah. to feel empowered. It kind of takes away the thought that maybe there's you're not doing something right. It's hmm. that actually well, there's, there's something physical, wrong with you. Yeah, yeah. Like there are reasons that this isn't happening because yeah. you haven't had A, B, and C in your Absolutely. diet. And then there's people that have genetic um, predispositions to having um, more difficulty metabolizing some vitamins and minerals. So for those people, you know, they definitely do need to supplement because you probably aren't going to get it from food. Um, and then if you've been so deplete from so many years of junk food, for example, you know, you probably need supplements as well as a change in diet. And a change in diet can take a long time for your body to actually adjust to eating high carbohydrate food to actually eating you know vegetables that take quite a long time to digest because of the high fiber and things like that so yeah, there's right. you know all these things can take some time yeah so do you have a clinic in your home or do you No, I've got a little wee office here I live in Pukekohe actually so I've got a little wee office here and you'd look to I guess um, build on that business and then have people come to you five days a week or however many you choose I would um, never work yeah. five days a week <laughs> yes um, yeah. and I need you know I need to get I mean I need to, simple things like I want to get blood pressure but there's no room in the in the space at the moment but I want to get blood pressure machines and I want to I'll get a few more tools that are actually are going to support me to do what I want to be doing as well so um, yeah. that's going to happen over time at the moment I get wins um, people that are under uh, wins they can come and see me and um, I have a, a couple of employment assistance programs such as um, Clearhead and um, OCP are two employment. They, they'll actually pay, you know, because they have, they have businesses that will pay for their um, employees to get some counselling or support. And so some people choose to come and see me slightly yeah. differently, a slightly different way of working, but, yeah. Would you call it counselling? No, it's no. very hard to know what to call it. I mean, yeah. I call it counselling because there's nothing really else to call it. But yeah, it, it, it makes sense. I don't know the rules around what you, who can be called a counsellor. Well, or... you're supposed to. Yeah, you're supposed to have like a. I remember trying to get a certificate in counselling, and the, and they wouldn't give it to me. So and you know, and then do you call yourself a therapist? Well, on it's very hard to describe. When I first started doing it, and I was talking to GPs, and they were like, "So you're a counsellor?" And I'm like, "No." Um, mm. <laughs> so you know, oh, you but you're doing dietary stuff, so that means you are doing dietitian work, and I'm like, no, <laughs> yeah, not that either. Yeah. But life, so life, life yeah. coaching, that's what yeah, you're, and then you're yeah. a life coach, but then that loses the whole nursing health. You know, it's, it's yeah, there's no easy name for it. So yeah, oh, all right. So if someone wanted to see you, who are the people that you work with? most like if someone was wondering if they're the right fit for coming to see you almost any age need to be a little bit self-motivated so I mean there's no point coming if they're not prepared or willing to make some changes I suppose that's one thing um because it unfortunately you do need to have a little bit of motivation so if you're severely depressed for example and really you know it's 
that's very hard. And I think if you're severely depressed, you actually do need medication in the first instance to actually lift the depression a little and then you can get a bit of motivation to make changes. So you do need to be a little bit motivated to make changes and kind of willing in some ways to learn and learn about yourself and what makes you tick and yeah, being a bit open to different concepts and things. Yeah. Yeah, but I've seen I've seen kids as young as twelve sometimes and I've said to the parents, look, I'm not a specialist in children, but they're like could you, you know, they're sort of like, oh, but, and so I said, look, I'll see them. And sometimes I just do one or two sessions and, and sometimes that's helpful as well, just to get the child, you know, sometimes it's actually the parents to understand about what the child might need in the way of food and nutrition and extra support. And um, if they're anxious, maybe, you know, some mindfulness and meditation every evening regularly might be something that could be really good for them. And, and men and women? Yes, Absolutely. Yeah, I get a lot of men actually, which is not, I didn't, you know, I thought my target audience was more sort of women, but I do get quite a few men coming to me and I love that. I love that they're yeah, that's awesome. enough to come out and yeah, yeah, it's very cool. Yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely changing a lot, isn't mm. it? Um, men being more open to talking about things and reaching out for help. Yeah. And even if someone just wants to chat, happy to chat, um, you know, if they want to email me, that's absolutely fine. I'm super interested in this work. So I love sort of connecting with other people that are that are doing the same sort of work as well. Um, it's nice. I've actually started like a integrative medicine for mental health nurses New Zealand Facebook page because there were lots of other nurses that were kind of getting interested in this, but there is no organization within New Zealand. Okay. So I've actually started our own little organization and hopefully we're supposed to meet in October, but let's see about that. Yeah. So my website is www.onelifenz.com. That's probably the easiest way, and you can contact me through there. And you're on Instagram as well, aren't you? I am on Instagram, yes. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Jenna. It's been lovely to talk to you.